turn this morning to Psalm 24. If you remember, of course you remember, of course you do, on, Psalm, on Palm Sunday we looked at Psalm 24 through the lens of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and according to uh, the, um, uh, the records and, and, and what would be uh, sung and read in the temple during different days, it was probably this psalm in particular, Psalm 24, that was being read when Christ entered into Jerusalem. Uh, we don't believe in coincidences. We don't believe, in, as we'll see, in luck or chance or anything like that. This was God's providence. So ordering it uh, so that those who had eyes to see and ears to hear uh, would understand it. So today we're going to look at Psalm 24 from a different perspective as we work our way through the variety of psalms this summer. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the word of God? Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word. Send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. We cannot grasp the depth of it on our own. Lord, you must open our eyes and hearts to it. And we seek this so that we might live in obedience to your holy word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 24, it is a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Well, who is this King of glory? It's the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Well, who is this King of glory? It's the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. If you'll remember that the last stanza there, really 7 through 10, is an antiphonal reading. It goes back and forth, usually between those who are outside the gates, city gates, returning with the triumphal king and the gatekeeper who is inside the gates. We hear this from the outside of the gates. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And those on the inside would say, well, who is this king of glory? And then the outside response would be the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then as the gates would open, they would say it one more time, not just to be persnickety, but because of the glory of God. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is the King of glory? It is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So, we see that in almost all the psalms, even the, the short ones, there's more than one aspect to, to highlight. There's more than one way of looking at the psalms. When we did Psalm 119, I think there were 12 uh, ways of looking at Psalm 119, at least, because you know it's 150 verses long, so it goes on and on and on, and, and it is glorious. Here, uh, we not only can highlight the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, 
on Palm Sunday, but we can also look at the sovereignty of God and who is this King of Glory? It is the Lord of Hosts. That's who the King of Glory is. So we're going to look at two aspects of this psalm this morning, what it speaks to and what it speaks against. So over a hundred years ago, Charles Spurgeon wrote, you cannot become a slave to your own generation by yielding to any of its notions or ideas which are contrary to the word of the Lord. So what Spurgeon was saying is that culture cannot become our God or the determiner of absolute truth. We cannot let culture do that. We have to look at God's word. Now, remember, that's over 100 years ago, and Spurgeon was warning the church that that is what was happening then. Well, it's not like it has stopped. It has only accelerated since then. And the world around us is pretty much occupied with itself, and we, we would expect no less from the world because we understand that uh, outside of Christ, we, we have this problem of depravity which touches all aspects of mankind. And when we are left to ourselves, um, our concern really doesn't extend far beyond myself. Okay? So the gods of culture exalt self. And anything that does not adhere to the self-exaltion exaltation, the self-determination, the self-determined truth, those things are discarded. And anyone who resists the exaltation of culture or self and the truth that is found there is persecuted. Psalm 24 calls everyone, calls everyone, believers and non-believers alike, to behold the majesty and the splendor and the sovereignty of and the grace of God's rule and ownership over everything that exists. So, therefore, the truth that is proclaimed in Psalm 24 is not really well accepted in the world today. So, first of all, let's look at what Psalm 24 speaks to. First and foremost, it speaks to God's sovereignty. We've kind of touched on that. We're going to dig into that. Because the earth, all of nature that surrounds it, everything is full of his glory. G.K. Chesterton said, Nature is a glorious theater, a spectacular sound and light show of the beauty of God. But nature is not God. To worship the whole or any part of nature is idolatry. To confuse God and nature is to fall into pantheism, an intolerable monism that obscures the distinction between, between creatures and the creator. Worship of the creation is idolatry. We worship the creator, not the creation. And it's easy, I think it's an easy case to make that self-worship is the fastest growing religion in our world today. Self-worship. Because whether we admit it or not, everybody's going to worship something. Everybody has a god or gods, and it just might be that your god or the god of many is themselves. I know there are quite a few fast-growing religions in the world, many that we would not expect to be called religions, but yet the secular world calls them religions. Eco-theology, eco-spirituality, defined as bringing together religion and environmental activism together in the worship of the earth. The religion of transgenderism. Now, I, I say the word religion because secular authors have realized that this has become a religion in our culture. And it holds the same aspects that, that, that true religion does. And there are more 
typical false religions in the world. Satanism, which is, is always present, but it got a boost re- recently from Target, right? Okay, let's put on Satanist themes and transgender themes on infants' clothes and toddlers' clothes. And, and uh, you know, I don't get that. I, I don't see the upside financially uh, to Target to doing that. And other places have done that as well. But there's a, I'm convinced there's a deeper thought behind it. And I will just quote Lenin. Give me just one generation and I'll transform the entire world. You can start that generation with a thought in their mind and a truth defined and they hear it again and again and again. As they grow up, that truth becomes reality and then they begin to live it out. That was his view of doing away with God and communism, how it's the the people, everything was the people. Of course, we, we know how that ended up. But it's the same type of philosophy. Let's start them when they're young. Let's poison their minds with abomination when they're young so that when they're old, they'll think it's normal. We, the church fights against that because we don't let culture determine what is true for us. We let the word of God determine what is true for us. Of course, there are other fast-growing religions, Islam, of course, in, in the rest of the world, many sects that mirror aspects of Christianity, but they diverge on the crucial aspect of who Christ is. But I think egocentrism, man-centeredness, is usually the root of every false religion. Because we don't want it to do it the way God says to do it. We want to do it the way what? The way that I think it ought to be done. Because it's all about me. In their study, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons documented that 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Again, it's about me. 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue things that you desire most. 91% to to find yourself, you must look where? Within. Sounds like modern music or Disney princess movie. And I've seen them all, okay? All right. Mm -hmm. But remember the words of Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You want to find truth? You want to look at that heart? No. I want a heart that is pure. I want to to look to a heart and a way that is right and just all the time. And where do I find that? We find it here in the word of God. We find it in Christ and in his example that he set. But looking at the fast-growing religions of the world, it appears the Westminster catechism that first question that Presbyterians all know that's probably the only one that we remember it's the only one I remember Um, what's the chief end of man was to glorify God and enjoy him forever it's been inverted now what's the chief end of man to glorify and enjoy yourself forever self the fastest growing religion and we know that outside of a heart changed by the love of Christ it is natural to think that I am as good as it gets that man is the measure of all things Therefore, why not make myself the happiest that I can be? Well, Psalm 24 challenges that. It challenges a man-centered religion with the truths of God's sovereignty over all things and all people, as well as his creative work over all things. So in order to hold any of the false religions, you have to first do away with God, the God of the Bible. And that means with his role as creator, and his role as sovereign Lord. Now, the men's Bible study on Wednesday has started into Genesis. And I think it's been 
five weeks and we're, we just finished the third or fourth chapter. And we're not exhaustive, but we're, we're being challenged with those things that the early chapters of Genesis say about what God has done in this world. How this world came to be. Nothing comes out of nothing. Either God has always existed and he is Lord or something else has always existed and man is Lord. Because we know in the late 1800s, in the studies of Louis Pasteur and John Tyndale, they did away with any thought of spontaneous generation. That life just sprung up from non-living matter. Okay, You don't take two innate particles, two particles that aren't alive, and put them together and poof, you have life. Only God speaks life into this world. And we understand that's the way he created it. He spoke and it was. He spoke and it was. The Bible makes it clear that the universe had a beginning. And if it had a beginning, then it must have a cause that existed prior to its beginning. But that truth is not very welcomed in the the atheist and the humanist world. The Dutch theologian Babink calls the doctrine of creation the starting point of true religion. The starting point of true religion. Francis Schaeffer believed that the doctrine of creation was so important that if he had an hour to sit down with one person to share the gospel with, he would spend the first 55 minutes talking about the doctrine of creation and the last five minutes about the gospel itself. Jonathan Edwards argued that creation is not an expression of God's need, but of his perfect fullness. As the Lord declares his creation to be what? Not just good, but very good. So Psalm 24 tells us the universe is not an independent entity that exists alongside of God or apart from God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It belongs to him. Now in the first verse of Psalm 24, it gives us two Hebrew words here to express the extent of God's reign. Earth, meaning the material resources and the world or the fullness which speaks to all of it again Spurgeon it speaks of its fullness in terms of its harvest its wealth its life its worship in all these senses the most high God is possessor of all things for he has made all things Derek Kidner says the world conjures up its wealth and fertility not as man's for his own exploitation, but as God's for God's satisfaction and God's glory. We think, why in the world? Think of all the planets that we can see now. Why is this one set where it is? Why is this one perfect for the existence of life? And we might say, well, that's chance. And again, we'll deal with that in just a moment. Um, But perhaps... The one who has always been here, the one who has always existed, determined that for his glory and our good, he would place us here, right in this perfect spot, that we would flourish so that he would be known, that the greatness of his glory would be declared in our lives, in our actions. So when the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, it doesn't mean he only created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the Bible's using there a form, it's called a merism. Uh, a merism is the same type of thing that you say when you get married. Okay, when the Bible says um, he, dec- he created the heavens and the earth, he's not just saying the heavens 
and the earth. He's saying everything in between as well. When you got married, maybe you got married down here, and you promised to, what, love each other for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Now, it's just not the extremes that you promised. It's everything in between, okay? So when you make those promises, you're promising to love one another in all aspects of life all the time. Same type of thing when God creates the heavens and the earth, he creates everything in between as well. The earth is his, the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him, and his purpose is for his glory, for his glory. Now, just to remind you, God's creation is different than ours. I used to teach junior high Sunday school many years ago. Um, I would do a class on creation, and I would empty the room, and I would say, guys, I'm going to give you, because it was all boys, guys, I'm going to give you 10 minutes, and I want you to make me a paper airplane, and I'll be back in 10 minutes, and I would leave, and I would stand outside the door, and then they were what? They were stuck, because they didn't have any paper. I'd gotten rid of everything. There was nothing there that they could, you know, they're pulling Kleenexes out of their pockets and trying to do it. And then I'd come back in and I'd say, where are the paper airplanes, guys? And they'd say, well, we didn't have anything to make them out of. And see, God doesn't have that problem. He doesn't need raw materials. If he wants to make steel, he doesn't need iron and, and coal. He just speaks it into existence. And there it is. That is the way that God works That's the point of Hebrews chapter 11. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's the point of Romans 4. God calls into existence the things that do not exist. He speaks and they're there. The the Bible's teaching about the nature and attributes of God requires creation. And it requires a creation out of nothing. Anything less undercuts the Bible's authority, undercuts God's sovereignty, his eternality, his holiness, his freedom. If you toss out creation, you've got to toss out a lot of other things as well. So Psalm 24 speaks to God's sovereign reign over all things. So let's look now at what Psalm 24 speaks against. Psalm 24 speaks against any idea or concept that for millennia, everything has always gone right by chance. And we know that chance is not an entity. We just say, you know, chance. Well, what is it? It's it's nothing that we can grasp onto. Uh, You flip a coin, oh, by chance it landed on heads. This is not the way that works. Chance is nothing. It's not a real thing. The idea that everything going right by chance is a concept, again, that Chesterton called atheistic optimism. Atheistic optimism. It's a theory that everything has always perpetually gone right by accident and is based on millennia of coincidences far more miraculous than any miracle we can find in God's word. It's always gone right. And here we are. We're evidence of it, right? Atheism cannot explain why there are so many intricate physical laws and processes that must be in place for the universe to exist. So in this sense, we believe there's an absurd... So they, they the, the atheists, would believe there's, there's a situation where the effect, that's creation, is greater than the cause, the creator. So the effect creation exists for the atheist 
but the cause, the creator, cannot exist. So let's put some sort of numbers and figures with this so that the idea that everything has always worked out favorably by chance. Okay? So let's start with something very simple, bacteria. Much more simple than I am, although not too far away. And I'm going to quote um, Dwayne Gish, and just so you all know, he's a creationist. And he writes about mutation. Mutation is the engine of evolution. And that it generates the genetic variation on which the evolutionary process depends. So even evolutionists recognize that true mutations are very rare. Beneficial mutations are extremely rare. Not more than one out of a thousand mutations are beneficial. So assume that at each mutational step, there is an equally as much chance for it to be good as it is for it to be bad. So the probability for success of each mutation is assumed to be one out of two. Could happen, could not. Statistical theory shows the probability of 200 successful mutations in a row is 1 out of 10 to the 60th power. Now, for those who are mathematicians, you've already figured that out. For those of us who are theologians, that's 10 followed by 60 zeros. Okay? So, in other words, the chance that a 200-component organism, that's bacteria, could be formed by mutation and natural selection is less than one chance out of a trillion, 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 trillion. Pretty thin. Those types of odds make it awfully difficult to think that even I came here by chance. Psalm 24 speaks against any thought that a mindless, non-rational, materialistic force could give rise to moral principles. Moral principles, it's the way we govern ourselves. Again, I'm going to quote Chesterton. Further, it should be understood that every effort must resemble its cause. Because simply put, you cannot give what you do not have. So it is impossible for any effect to possess something its originating cause did not have. I can't give you a million dollars unless I, what? Have a million dollars to give away. So, so he's saying that, the case is how can one believe that an impersonal, amoral, purposeless, and meaningless universe accidentally created beings that are full of purpose, morals, meaning, capable of creating art and literature and music. Try to play some Mozart someday and think that Mozart just evolved. Okay, the complexities of that music there. So who is this king of glory. Who is the one that is sovereign over all things? Who is the one who is the creator, who is the cause of everything else, and how should we respond to the king of glory? He spoke the universe into existence. He brought order out of chaos. The king of glory. It is an attribute. Glory is an attribute that is beyond us, while at the same time is measurable. Glory in the Hebrew means heaviness, a weightiness, a measurableness on the scales of what is important. So the king of glory is the Lord, the one who holds all things, sustains all things, created all things for his immeasurable glory. So how should you respond? Let me give you an example. 
1743, Handel's Messiah was first played. And upon hearing the Hallelujah Chorus, King George II rose to his feet as an act of homage. Since then, it is customary on Easter, we all stand up, right, when we sing it. It is customary to always stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. But after that first hearing, the British royalty thought that that was a little much for them, so they remained seated and everybody else stood up after that. That is until Queen Victoria came along. She was present at a special presentation of the Messiah. And she was young and hadn't really gotten her feet wet in this royalty life, and, and, but she was instructed by her handlers, basically, that everybody else will stand, but you are to not stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. So she remained seated until the choir reached the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. She couldn't take it anymore. She stood up and she took off her crown and put it down at the feet of the Lord. That is the proper response to the King of Glory, the God of the Bible who reigns over all the earth, but who is kind enough to bid the likes of us to come to him, to come to the throne of grace and lay all that we are before him. But you may think, like the psalmist says, oh, I, I could never enter into the presence of the Lord. Who can possibly get there? I don't have a clean hand. I don't have a pure heart. Spurgeon said, well, look then, my friends, to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. Follow in his footsteps, rely upon his merit. Ride, tr he rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall as well, if you trust in him, for the Lord God, the King of glory, shall create in you a new heart and shall create in you a right spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we are dust. At a very root, that's what we are. But yet you have gathered us together. And you, you formed us. And you, you looked at us right face to face and you breathed life into us. And you have done so for your glory. But so often we live our lives for our own. We live our lives for our own purposes, our own desires, our own glory. But yet all of creation screams of your existence. All of creation screams of your magnificence. You have put us here so that we might understand that, so that we might hear the truth so that our ears might not be slaves to the gods of modern culture and society, that our hearts would be set free by Christ. We pray that you would speak to us today, Lord. Remind us of who you are. Remind us. Call us by name, Lord. We know our hearts can be hard. We know we can shut our ears to, to what is true, but you, Heavenly Father, can break through that. You can tear down the barriers that we put up, the walls that we erect in our lives, our defenses to try to keep you away, that, that we focus only on ourselves. Tear those things down and come crashing into our hearts today, Lord. 
that we would know who the King of Glory is. That we would respond in a way that is proper. That our hearts would be broken before you. And that your grace and your mercy would build them up into the likeness of Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand.